Hey, good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here at FBC. And it's great to be with you as we carry on this series called The Bible for Grown-Ups. We're in week two of a four-week series where we are just trying to engage uh, with the Bible. Um, many of us know the stories that are contained within the Bible, but do we actually know the story of the Bible and how we got the Bible? And there's so much stuff in there that actually when we understand a bit more of the backstory behind the Bible, helps us to understand it and, and get to grips with it um, a little bit better. And if you missed uh, last week, if you missed week one, you can catch up. Just go to fbcnext.com, click on latest messages, and you can watch or listen or subscribe to the podcast um, of all of those messages. There's also a, a place where you can download some discussion questions. Maybe you're in a, a connect group uh, in the week, a great place to just to meet and, and discuss uh, with one another. And there's some questions there that you can use um, or not use. You can use them yourself um, just as you're commuting into work, uh, just to help you remember some of that stuff and engage with it on a deep level. And we're trying to do a whole load of stuff um, around this, this subject just to help us engage with the Bible a little bit better. Um, in a few weeks' time or at the end of November, we've got an event coming up called uh, Walk Through the Old Testament. It's by an organization called Walk Through the Bible um, who do stuff to help people grasp um, you know, the overview, the big the meta-narrative, the big stories um, of the Bible. So we've got a whole day on a Saturday, the 23rd um, of November um, here, where some of the guys from Walk Through the Bible will be coming and presenting that. It's an interactive workshop is how it's built. Uh, and the whole point of that is to, to help you grasp what is that big story um, within the Old Testament. Perhaps you know uh, there's some of this stuff here and there's some of that stuff there and some of that stuff over there. But how does that fit together? What comes first and what comes next? Um, so at the end of this day, you will know that big story and those key events and where they fit um, with into the Old Testament. And then hopefully, if this goes really well, um, at some point in the next uh, year, in 2020, we'll do walk through the New Testament and you'll be able to put the whole of the Bible um, all together. Uh, so there's some stuff I really encourage you um, to look into that. Just go to fbcnext.com. You can find out all about that event. You could subscribe um, to it or sign up for it uh, and get all the information that you need. But one of the things I want us to look at today um, is this question. Do I have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian? Have you ever found yourself asking that question or pondering that question? Has anybody ever asked you that question? Do I have to believe everything uh, that's in the Bible in order for me to be a Christian? You know, you might think, well, there's some bits, yeah, I'm on board with that, and I, I believe that, and I understand that, and yeah, I'm excited about that. But there's some things in the Bible that just seem strange. There's some things that I just don't understand. There's some things that seem weird. There's some things that actually, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe that that's literally true or not. Do I have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian? And there's one part of the Bible in particular that for many people we can struggle with, we can stumble over, we, it can throw up these sort of questions. And that's this part, this thing called Genesis, which is the very first book right at the beginning um, of the Bible. Uh, and we can struggle um, with Genesis. I know many people will read through it and, and think, you know, is this literally true? Are these things that are written in here? You know, did God create the world in seven days? Adam and Eve, are, are they real? You know, is that true? Do I have to believe um, in that, that, that account of creation in Genesis to be a Christian? Do I have to believe in Adam and Eve uh, in order uh, to be a Christian? And, and sometimes we have lots of these, these questions that, that come up. Um, and you know, part, part of the whole reason why we struggle, or some of us might struggle with Genesis, is the same as why we might struggle.
struggle with other parts of the Bible. And it's all to do with our approach um, towards reading the Bible or how we handle the Bible or how we engage with the Bible. And for some of us, part of the problem comes when we think the Bible is a book. Now, I've got a Bible here. This Bible was given to me on my um, ordination um, when I graduated from Spurgeon College and came here, actually, and it was uh, presented to me uh, as a gift. And when we think the Bible is a book, we can often come unstuck with how we handle and deal with the Bible. And I can see that some of you are confused because you're looking at me and say, well, Chris, you are holding a Bible and it looks like a book to me. And you're saying it's not a book. Well, what is, what is it? Well, let me explain uh, what I mean by that. The problem with when the Bible comes to us, it's been chaptered, it's been versed, um, mine's been mapped. I've got some maps in the back. It's been wrapped in a nice leather yeah, it is real leather, leather case and, and those things, and I can carry it around. And, and that's been done for our convenience. It's been done to make you know, the Bible more manageable and help us um, engage with it. But the problem is, when it's done like that, when it's been ver- chapter and verse and, and wrapped together in this cover, we look at it and think it's a book. And that's where we start to come uh, unstuck. If you were to go to a library and to sit down and to grab a book um, off a bookshelf, I've got a book here, Finding the Plot, Preaching in Narrative Style, by Roger Standing, nonetheless, who comes to FPC. Roger often preaches on this stage. You know, and, and when you pick up a book, uh, you often know, well, what, what is it all about? What genre is that book that you're reading? Is it fiction? Is it poetry? Is it historical? Is it... I'm not quite sure what the genre of this is. Uh, educational, maybe, instructional. It's a good book, honestly, I'm teasing. Uh, you know the stuff behind that. And sometimes you know a little bit more about, well, why did the person write that? Did they write it to entertain? Did they write it because they wanted to present an alternative worldview? Did they write it because they're trying to tell, um, inform people about something that happened in history or, or to put a political statement across? You know, whenever you pick up any piece of writing, chances are you know the genre of the writing that you you are reading, and you read it in that way. The problem is that when we pick up the Bible, we open it, and we think it's all the same. So we read the beginning in the same way that we read the middle, in the same way that we read the end. We think that what's happening in Genesis is the same thing, or who wrote Genesis is doing the same thing as somebody who wrote some of the stuff that we find later on in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who write the Gospels right at the beginning of the New Testament. We can often think that you know, um, the Psalms are, are the same as something later on, as Jeremiah, as a prophet um, writings. And that's where we start to come unstuck because we don't read the Bible in the same way that we would read any other book. We read all the same stuff in the, in the same way. And actually, this is a better representation of what the Bible is all about. The Bible isn't a book. It's a collection of books. It's a collection of, of ancient documents. And there's so much stuff in there. Some of it's poetic. Some of it is narrative. Some of it is historical. Some of it is instructional. You know, there's, some of it is biographical or, or memoirs. There's so many different styles of writing, so many different genres. And we need to understand a little bit about what is it that I'm reading why was this written in the first place? And then I can begin to, to understand, well, what does that mean for me today? And often when we come across this, this book, right at the beginning um, of our Bibles, um, we struggle um, to understand it because we're not totally sure, well, what is it 
doing? Why is it there? What is its purpose um, for being there? And uh, we just need to understand, you know, how are we reading this and how do we engage in this? Now, Genesis is the very first book um, that you come to um, in, the bar, in your Bible. If you were to open up the front cover and get to the first um, writing or, or document, it would bring you to Genesis. And what that often means for many of us is that we think the Bible begins at Genesis, but the Bible doesn't begin at Genesis. The Bible begins inside an empty tomb. The beginning of the Bible isn't this, the opening words and the opening verses and the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. The beginning of the Bible is an event that happened in history, that Jesus lived and was crucified but didn't stay dead, that he was resurrected. Now, what do I mean by this? Rachel talked about this um, uh, last week. You know, if, it, if Jesus was crucified, and if Jesus was put into a tomb, and if he didn't come back to life, if Jesus stayed in that tomb, we would not have this thing that we call the Bible today. It just wouldn't exist. If Jesus stayed dead, we wouldn't know that Jesus existed, that a man called Jesus lived and did these things. If Jesus stayed dead, we wouldn't have, we would have no clue that this document called Genesis ever existed. It was written before Jesus um, was on earth, so you know, it predated him. But the reason we know about it is because Jesus lived, because Jesus was crucified, but because he didn't stay dead, because he came back to life. Because then what happened is that sparked huge interest in who Jesus was. And you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, went about writing an account, this biographical account of the life of Jesus. That four people have done that in ancient times is absolutely amazing. That's almost unheard of. And then other people, Peter and Paul and James and John, um, wrote letters of instruction and encouragement um, to, the, to this new movement, which we call the church, that erupted and exploded onto the page of history, trying to remind them, look, this is who Jesus is, and this is what it means for you to be a follower of him. So we have this New Testament that comes out of the fact that Jesus was crucified and came back to life. And then people actually, this other stuff, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, what we know as the Old Testament was added in because people wanted to get this backstory on who is this Jesus and, and what was important to him. Let's try and understand a little about his culture and his context. But it's really important that we understand this and then we frame this because then we begin to read Genesis in light of the resurrection. When we view the Bible as a book, we think each page builds on the next and on the next and on the next and we read it in a linear manner. And that's true, you know, if I was to give you um, a book, you know, Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace, an amazing book, and I would say to you, read that, where would you start? Well, you'd open it up, and you'd start at the beginning, and you'd read your way through systematically to the end. Now, if I was to give you a Bible, if, you're, if you've been a Christian or a follower of Jesus um, for any time, and I'd say, well, read that, where would you start? Most of you, most of us who've engaged with this would know, well, let's not start at the beginning. Uh, you know, Genesis is great and it's full of narrative and stuff, and Exodus is okay, but as you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it gets a bit harder work, uh, and we start, you know, we give up on it there. We'd actually say, you know, you want to start somewhere towards the end of the middle. You'd want to start with who Jesus is. And this is where it gets confusing, because if you've never engaged with this before, you're thinking, well, it's a book, and, and what you're telling me to read it there, and then don't read the next bit, read something else over there, and hop over here, and then read there, and then get to Genesis, and then read there, and save you know, Leviticus and Revelation to last because, you know, one's hard going and one is just well confusing. You know, none of us read a book like that and we don't read the Bible like that. Why? Because the Bible is not 
a book. It's far more than a book. And it's so important that we get this right. It's so important that we start to talk about the Bible in the right, uh, right way. Because the problem is, um, you know, when we engage with this, and, and you, know, you might go off somewhere, or maybe uh, you might have a, 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 young, a teenager at home, or who's engaging in RE, or stuff like that, or you read stuff, you pick up um, books by people like Dan Brown or um, Richard Dawkins, and they argue and question these things, and they say stuff about Genesis, and you're like, well, these are bright, intelligent people, and they, they are saying things that I just don't have the answer for. And I look at Genesis, and Genesis gives me this story um, of creation, and it seems these bright, intelligent people are giving me an alternative one that seems to contradict what's found in Genesis. Uh, who do I believe? And it comes back to saying, so, so maybe Genesis isn't literally true, and, and you know, do I have to believe that to be- become a Christian? And what happens is we start to think this. You know, if Genesis isn't true, then none of it is true. It's a house of cards. You pull one out and the whole thing comes crashing down. And you know what? I've seen so many people lose their faith because they struggle to understand or interpret a part of Scripture, a part of the Old Testament, perhaps part of Genesis. And it is not necessary. You do not need to lose your faith over whether the world was created in seven days or not. You can believe in a seven-day creation or you can believe in the concept of an old earth and still be a Christian. You do not need to lose your faith over whether Adam and Eve were literally true. You can believe that there were people who really existed called Adam and Eve, or you can believe that actually that's just a metaphor of something else. And you can still be a Christian. Why? Because the foundation of your faith is not in this thing that we call the Bible, because the Bible didn't even exist for the first 300 years that the church existed. The foundation of your faith is in an event in history, in the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible is a tool, a resource to inform us, to instruct us, to help us, to encourage us, and to challenge us. And we need to get this right because often we make claims about the Bible that the Bible never makes about itself. We often make claims about the Bible that God never makes uh, about it. And we need to get how we're talking about this right. You know, you might have been a Christian for many years and and you understand all of that sort of stuff and those nuances and and you've come to grips with that and, and you're fine with that. But what is the faith of the next generation worth uh, for you? Because sometimes the way we talk about this is not helpful and actually creates obstacles for people that they lose their faith over something that they don't need to lose their faith over. And what I want us to do briefly this morning is just look um, at Genesis. Look at the opening verses of Genesis and try to understand, well, what is it there for? What is it saying? What is it doing? What's its point? Why do we have it? And how do we apply it to our lives today? How can we engage in Genesis from a biblical point of view and also to lean on and lean into modern scientific thought? So we've got about eight hours to cover all that. So cancel your lunch plans. And now we'll do this quite quickly. See, Genesis was written in um, a time of the world, we believe this guy called Moses wrote Genesis, and uh, he was written at a time when the whole of the world, all the cultures, the you know, Egyptians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans, and Greeks, as we go um, throughout the history, were all what we would call polytheistic. That means that they believed in a plethora of gods. You know, there was a whole range um, of gods, and you had gods for different things. You know, you'd have gods for battle, and gods for farming, and, and gods for childbirth, and gods uh, for, for absolutely everything. And, you know, when you go into battle, your god will basically be fighting against the other gods. So if you were victorious in battle, it means that your god was bigger or better uh, than someone else's god. And the whole world at the time that Genesis was written was polytheistic. They just 
just believed in a plethora um, of, of gods. And what would happen is if you saw another god from another culture that you thought, oh, that's good, I'd like that god, you would just add that god to your collection. You know, you wouldn't stop believing in your gods, you would just incorporate that god into your stuff and your whole altar or stuff that you would create. You'd carry these gods around with these images uh, with you and it'd get bigger and bigger. You see, Moses is from the people of Israel, the Hebrews, the the Jewish uh, people, and they stand apart from the whole of the world at that time because Moses and the Israelites, the Jewish people, are not polytheistic. They are monotheistic. They believe in one God, Yahweh. And it's not that they're saying, you know, Yahweh, our God is better than your God. They're like, your gods don't even exist. They're not gods. No, there is only one God, uh, and Yahweh is his name. And what you would see, so at the time of Moses, each culture had their own worldview, their own interpretation, their own stories on how life began and how um, the world was created. And Moses, you know, presents Genesis. Uh, we believe God inspired him into that, into a culture that actually had this plethora of views about, about the universe and about the world and about creation. And so Moses is writing into this polytheistic culture where everybody believed in all these different gods and all that sort of stuff. And the opening words of Genesis, Moses says this, in the beginning, God. And we just totally miss the whole point of what Moses is saying there. You know, this is absolutely radical in that world because every single person alive, other than the Jewish people at that time, thought, well, in the beginning was the gods. Before there was me, before there was the world, there was the gods. You know, the gods have always existed, and there's a multitude um, of different uh, gods. But, but Moses is, is saying something different. No, no, in the beginning was God. Just, just, just one God. That creation comes out of this one God. Uh, and, you know, Moses is presenting a worldview that is so ahead of his time. Now, actually, the, the rest of the world wouldn't catch up until 1927 when a Belgian priest called Georges Limater um, announced this theory, which we know today called the Big Bang Theory. See, up until this point, the, the, the whole world at the time, and, you know, Aristotle articulated what the ancient people believed and actually modern people right up until recent time believed. And that was that the universe always existed. And that was often an argument um, against creation and stuff. Was that the, world, the universe has always existed. But Moses is saying something different. Genesis is saying something different. The universe hasn't always existed. The universe has had a beginning. And in the beginning was God. And from that beginning, we see something. And that starts to shift our understanding because everything that has a beginning has a cause, has a purpose. And the argument that we're facing today is, is that beginning and is that cause an accidental one? You know, are we here? Is our beginning, is our cause because of a personal creator God, or is it because of some cosmic fluke? And our interpretation of that actually shifts the way we see ourselves, and it shifts the way we see the world around us. But, you know, Moses through Genesis is saying, look, you've, you've got it wrong. The universe hasn't always existed. 4,000 years it would take the modern world to catch up on this. 4,000 years Moses is articulating what, what the bright minds would take, take them so many years to actually find, grasp to be true. That's so amazing. You know, but Moses is saying, you've got this wrong. In the, begin- the universe hasn't always been there. In the beginning uh, was God. And he goes to unpack that. And we often miss the point of what comes next in Genesis because Genesis is answering a question that none of us are asking anymore. Genesis is presenting an argument that's already been won, that the, the universe has a beginning. 
That's the point of what Moses is talking about. No, not that it's always existed, but that Genesis shows us that creation has a beginning. And all these ancient worlds had these different cultures and these different um, stories, these different traditions about how the universe was created. And you've got the Egyptian theories and the Babylonian theories. And as we go through time, you know, the Persians and the Romans and then the Greeks at the time of Jesus. And I, I'm really um, fascinated by, the Greek, by Greek mythology. I love uh, Greek mythology. And, you know, when you, you compare and contrast it to some of the Egyptian stuff, which was a lot earlier, actually it's still quite similar. Um, and uh, this guy, you know, Steve Stephen Fry, if you come across Stephen Fry, he's written this excellent book called Mythos, um, yeah, Mythos which is all about um, the Greek myths. I really encourage it. If you're interested in that sort of stuff, read it. It's a fascinating read. Um, but Stephen Fry so eloquently um, presents, you know, what is the, the Greek myth? What did the world at the time of Jesus believe about their existence and their creation? And basically, you know, what Greek mythology tells us is that the world was created out of chaos. That in the beginning there was just chaos, and then somehow life or divine life was formed out of chaos. And then you have you have Gaia, who is Earth, but but Gaia is more than just the physical Earth. Gaia is also a divine being, and somehow Gaia um, gives birth to other divine um, creatures. And then she gets together with some of her offspring, like Uranus, who's like the god of sky, and they conceive other divine beings, and and so on, and you know. All this strange stuff. And then there's one of those offsprings of Gaia and Uranus is, is a, a god called Kronos. That's where time comes from. So before Kronos, there was no time in Greek thought or Greek mythology. And Kronos comes in. Kronos is not a big fan of his dad, Uranus. He wants to dethrone him. He wants to kill him if, if, if you can kill a divine being. So one day, Kronos sneaks up on his dad and he attacks him. And I kid you not, he cuts off his his manhood, uh, to say. There you go. We've got kids in here. It's great to, to be in here. We, you know, they've got other places to be. Anyway, so that's what he does. This is, this is in there. And he cuts off. Uranus is not too pleased about this. And he's screaming his head off. And um, Kronos uh, grabs his dad's bloody package and throws it across the sky. And it goes hurling across the heavens and lands in the sea. And Uranus is bleeding. And where his blood forms or, or pulls on the ground, life starts to burst forth. And these other divine creatures creatures are breaking out of the ground, and they are gruesome, and they are brutal, uh, and, you know, violent stuff. But where Uranus' um, yeah, bits land, uh, somewhere near the island of Cyprus, the sea starts to bubble, and the sea starts to form, and another divine creature is birthed. And this time, this divine creature is so different from the violent, bloody creatures that were formed on the land. Aphrodite um, is created uh, from there. You might know, perhaps you've heard about Aphrodite. And you see this, all, this sort of stuff. This is, this is the backstory to creation and how life happens. And then through Aphrodite and some other gods, you know, more gods are, are, are birthed, and, and Zeus comes along. Zeus is, you know, the main man. You, perhaps you've heard about Zeus. And one day, Zeus is ruling. He's become the, like the king of all the gods. He's in charge, and he's a bit bored. So him and the, um, his brother Prometheus, um, you know, come up with a plan because, you know, Zeus is bored, and he needs some entertainment. So they decide to create human life. And they get together and they get some clay and another god breathes some life um, into, um, into that human life. And there you go. Human life is created. And why are we created? Well, we're created to entertain the gods. We're created to give you know, Zeus something to do. We're like some pets for them. According to Greek mythology, you and I are nothing more than some cosmic Tamagotchis. 
Uh, that's exactly what's going on, on in there. And when you begin to understand that, you know, the Egyptian and the Babylonian and the Persian theories were similar. They were violent. They were bloody. They were barbaric. And when you look at their cultures, you see, well, they're exactly the same. They are violent. They are bloody. They are barbaric. They were just imitating their fathers in the heavens. They were just doing the same thing that their fathers uh, were doing. And in the midst of that culture, in that context, Moses speaks something very different, and he presents a completely different argument, a completely different worldview to what the rest of the world thought about. And, you know, today, you know, our modern thought doesn't think the same stuff that the Egyptians or, or the Greeks did, but there's still debate about that origin um, of life, and that influences how we see ourselves and how we see the world around us. Genesis today still stands in stark contrast to that. You know, Genesis answers some of the biggest questions that we have, that some of the brightest minds that modern scientific thought can't answer. You know, one of those questions is this, why is there something and nothing? You know, science can't answer that question for you. I'm a big fan of science, but it can't tell you the answer to that. But Genesis can. Why is there something and not nothing? God. God is the reason why there is something and not nothing. And Richard Dawkins would respond uh, to that, and he'd say, well, you know, if God created the world, who created God? Have you ever asked that question? Has anybody asked you that question? And this is a pointless question. It's an endless question, because you could say, well, Steve created God. And then you say, well, who created Steve? Well, Paul created uh, Steve. Okay, who created Paul? Well, Rachel created, you know, and you just keep going back and back. And this endless spiral of questions has to end with who you believe to be the ultimate reality. You know, Dawkins believes that the universe is the ultimate reality. But the problem with that is that the universe cannot explain itself. And what Moses presents through Genesis is that the universe isn't the ultimate reality. God is the ultimate reality. That through God, we find meaning and we find purpose and we find hope. There's another great book I'd love to recommend to you called um, Seven Days That Divide the World, written by John Lennox, a really bright um, guy talking about like this creation stuff and how you can engage uh, with that on a scientific level. So if you've got questions about the Genesis account, I really recommend grabbing hold of a copy of that book. It's here at the front, so have a look at it um, at the end. But what we are seeing is that through Genesis, we're giving a radically different and life-affirming alternative to the ancient theories and to our modern scientific theories. And it, it continues, you know, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And this is so different. Now, let me just speak to that because, you know, I said the Hebrews, the Egypt, um, they were monotheistic, believed in one God. This can sound a little bit confusing because who's God talking to? Well, God's talking to himself. You know, we believe in one God, that Yahweh is one but exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's well confusing. That's not three separate identities. That's one, um, three personalities in one uh, makeup. I know that's really confusing. I've not got time to go into that because I don't really understand it fully myself. But God says to himself, let's make mankind in our own image. This is so different to the, the, the worldview of its time. We, according to Genesis, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are not an afterthought. We are not there to entertain the gods. We are the pinnacle. Out of everything that God created, you are the best. Out of everything that God has created, you are his favorite. You are not an afterthought. You are of intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. And that's what we see uh, about that. You know, we do not find our, our origin in the bloody castration of some horny God. We find our beginning in a loving creator, 
God, a God who is intimately involved in his world and his creation. And that gives us dignity, and that gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It shows us we are created in the image of God. We're not an afterthought. We are not a cosmic fluke. We are not an accident. We are not there just to entertain uh, the gods. We're not even there to worship the gods and to elevate their ego. You know, God doesn't need our worship to make him feel better about himself. Actually, we engage in worship because it helps us become aware of him and it, it helps us do that. But Genesis continues, God said, let's make mankind in our own image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. You know, through this story, we're given a purpose. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. Everything that has a beginning has a purpose. And in Genesis, we're introduced to that. You know, our purpose is to rule over the creation. Now, we may misinterpret that. We may see that as being powerful and having dominion and control uh, over that. That's not what this is all about. You know, we're to rule over creation in the same way that God would. God invites us to to partner with him, to work with him in his creation, to look after, to protect, um, to bear his image in the world that he has created, to be for the world what God is for us, to, to set up the world, to protect it, to look after it, to watch over it, to enable life to flourish, to enable people um, to flourish. That's what rule over. It's not about having lordship and dominion and power and authority. It's about love and service and grace. And that's the purpose that we see um, through through creation, that we were created in God's image to work in his creation. But we see something more through this. We're, we're, We're given our identity, we're given our dignity, we're given our purpose, but we're also introduced to our creator. We're introduced to our God. We're introduced to a God who loves, a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who restores. We're introduced to a God who is unlike any other God of that ancient time, a God who was willing to go to work to undo the consequence of his own creation's rebellion against him. That's what we read on as we read through Genesis, that mankind, humankind, we chose to not follow God. We chose to not listen to God. And there was a consequence for that. What does God do? What do we engage with as we read through Genesis and we read through the rest of the Old Testament into the New Testament is that this God is willing to go to work to undo that, to take that consequence consequence onto himself. This is so different different to what the other theories about the characters of the gods were like. This is not something that um, Egypt's Amon-Re or the Babylonian Marduk uh, would do. This is only something that Yahweh would do. Why? Because he is loving and powerful, that he cares about us, that he is intimately involved in our lives, that he has created us on purpose, with a purpose, for a purpose. He says, I want you to be involved uh, in my creation. I want you to be involved uh, with me. And this is so different to the theories of its time. And it's so different to some of our thought um, today. You see, Genesis isn't trying to tell us how the world was created. Rather, 
who created it. That's what Moses is trying to do. He's not trying to give us a scientific answer for how did the world create, was the world created. And imagine if he did. Would anybody understand it all those years ago? Would we even understand it today? And as you actually read through Genesis, you see structure and you see order that is affirmed in our modern thought and modern scientific practice. You know, it was so ahead of its time. But Genesis isn't trying to give us that scientific answer to how the world was created. It's trying to show us who created. It's introducing us to God. Uh, you know, the answer to the question, where do babies come from, differs depending on who's asking the question. You know, so if a three-year-old is asking you that question, you would answer that truthfully, but you would answer it in a different way than if a teenager was asking the question. And that answer changes to if a medical student is asking the question. You know, all those answers are still true, but we change the way that we answer them depending on who's asking the question. You know, Moses is writing this stuff. God is inspiring him to write into this culture that is years, thousands and thousands of years ago. Go, yeah, it is so radical and it's so ahead of its time. It so um, presents such a contrast to those ancient theories and it presents such a contrast to our modern scientific thought. The reason why this is so important is because how we see or how we view our own creation and how our own beginning, our own origin, impacts how we view the world around us. Just look at ancient times. You know, you, the, their lifestyle mirrored the fact that the, what their gods were doing. Their gods were bloody and violent and barbaric. And what were they? Well, they were bloody and violent and barbaric. We are created in the image of of God, and we are called to be his image bearers in his earth that he's created. We are called to act like our heavenly Father. We are created by a loving and creator God. You are not a toy or a plaything for the gods, you are not some cosmic fluke. You are created with a purpose. That God says, I want you to be involved in my creation. I want you to look after it. I want you to be good stewards of it. I want you to watch over it. I want you, just as I have enabled this and set this up so that life can flourish. That's what I want you to do. In your places of work and in your schools and in your homes and in your communities and in your churches and wherever you are, I want you to be my image bearer. I want you to bear my image. I want you to live your life on purpose. I want you to be a voice of hope. I want you to be a mechanism of light, a mechanism of love, a mechanism of light into a world that is desperate for it. That is why we were created. So let's get on with it. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for this just wonderful example that we see in Genesis. That was thousands of years ahead of its time. Thank you for the wisdom and the richness that's in there. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to understand what it means to us today. That we could engage with this on a deeper level. That as we see how we're created and why we're created that we will see the value, the intrinsic value that you've placed in every one of us, that we will see that intrinsic, intrinsic value in the people around us, that we will discover the purpose for why you have created us. And Lord, would you give us the courage to live out that purpose. Thank you, Lord. Amen. <laughs>